Okay. We're ready to go now, I think. I think we're ready. Set. We're in Ruth, and we are moving out of chapter 1. Hello, Irene. Moving out of uh, chapter 1 into chapter 2. So, we've got a lot to do this morning. As a matter of fact, I have passed out the doctrine of the Leverite marriage. It's something that came up in chapter 1, but I chose not to deal with it then. We're going to deal with it uh, at the beginning of chapter 2. And so, it's, a, it's not an involved one because we don't have a lot of Scripture, but um, it's important for us to, to understand that concept as it's uh, portrayed in the Word of God. So, we have just a few seconds now for spiritual preparation. It gives us an opportunity to, uh, for confession of sins. Also, again, to... I like to say relax and uh, begin to focus our concentration on the Word of God. So, let's take a few seconds for uh, prayer, individual prayer, and then I will open us in prayer. Dearly Father, we're thankful for the book of Ruth. We're thankful for our opportunity to study this book, um, and not from a standpoint of just a lovely story, but the fact that it has great pertinence in our lives. Help us to uh, focus this morning on the specifics of this book and the lessons and be able to understand them and apply them to our lives. We also, Father, pray for our nation, pray for the leadership of this nation. We pray for those who have lost uh, loved ones in the event down in uh, Virginia Tech. We pray for those who those families that uh, have lost loved ones, and we pray, Father, that this event will cause them to either take a uh, a closer look at the grace of God and our Lord Jesus Christ's work on the cross, or to understand more fully the truths of the Word of God so that they will be able to apply them in their lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Last time we saw verse 22 of chapter 1. Verse 22, we said, was sort of a transitional verse. And that's how I uh, looked at verse 22. So as we see uh, a transition from... uh, Chapter 1, which we could call Act 1, and Chapter 2, which is Act 2, we see that Naomi has returned. And that is the, the word that we finally conclude with in this chapter because she's returning, 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 returning. We see it 11 times. And so finally, she returned. And Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And that refers to Naomi, who's returning from the country of Moab. Now they came, uh, they entered Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And so we've seen that they're there really already because there's an exchange between Naomi and her friends. And now we see that this sort of concludes that chapter, that act, and it gives us insight into, the, into when they arrive, that the Lord has brought them back at a particular time, a very gracious time. And this is uh, the beginning of the barley harvest. Barley was the first grain that would be harvested in Israel. And so they're arriving 
at the most opportune time. They're there for the very first uh, harvest, and it's the grain of barley. And so as we now begin verse 1 of chapter 2, we see there was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, according to my translation, of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. His name, Boaz. We don't have the verb, and so it's even more dramatic. His name, Boaz. Kind of a a wonderful way to introduce someone. And we see that, first of all, we have a relative of Naomi's husband. And this is how we start Act 2 with this revelation. They've come at a very opportune time. But then immediately we have this this revelation that there's a relative of Naomi's husband here. And so while she was going back, probably to uh, her family, uh, possibly her family, but maybe extended family. But again, we have to understand the relationship, relationships in uh, the ancient Near East, uh, the ancient Middle East, and that is how families changed at the point of marriage. At the point of marriage, the woman moved really from the realm of her family to her husband's family. And that's why Naomi goes through this rather lengthy discussion uh, to her with her daughters-in-law about uh, members of her family, her sons. So, again, we see this. We don't see that there's a relative of Naomi's family somewhere here for her to go back to. No, she's going back to, to the family of her husband. And so... And, and again, we, we would say that seems rather strange. It doesn't, doesn't really make any difference. In those days, yes, it did. This was the culture. Uh, they did not have the, the same, um, what we might call, uh, safety nets that we have today for welfare, unemployment, uh, and other things. And uh, the uh, real... Uh, uh, security in the family was what the husbands and sons were going to really uh, be able to earn or the prosperity from the, the farming. And that's not to say that the women weren't uh, greatly involved in that, and they certainly were. But the idea was is that there's a way of, of the families developing and growing. And so in this this case, in the culture, we see that what's important here is that there's a relative of Naomi's husband. and so there, But we don't see the immediate connection here just yet. We just The uh, narrator, the writer, God the Holy Spirit, is simply gives us this piece of information because Boaz is introduced here by name, but he's not introduced in person yet. That comes later. And so we almost have... Um, uh, the narrator of the of the player of the story telling us this. So, as readers, we get information ahead of Naomi and Ruth. And it's sort of an interesting way of doing this. Uh, Ruth doesn't know this yet. Naomi, uh, if she knows it, she's either it's not you know conscious to her just yet. But there was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, and the word here for wealth is the Hebrew word chayil. And it's an important word to us. Um, it's H 
H-A-Y-I-L. Chyle. And this is a, a hard H. Almost like clearing your throat. Chyle. And it can mean strength. It can mean efficiency. It's a, a very... It's used... Uh, many times in the Old Testament. And it has a rather broad meaning. It can mean strength. It can mean efficiency. It can mean wealth. There are even some places where it seems to have the sense of army. And we'll talk about this in a minute. Uh, We also see that his name, Boaz, and that's his proper name. And like the other names, uh, or like some of the other names, we're not real sure about the derivation of this name. We're not real sure what it means. It's a proper name. And we think, something seem to think that it might mean strength or it might mean vigor. But we simply don't know because it's not used anywhere else in the Bible. It just This word doesn't appear, nor are there any cognates of it. We don't see any other words that are related to it. So this, is, um, this name comes to us and we're not sure exactly what it might mean or, uh, or how it might pertain to the story. But anyhow, let me talk just a little bit about this verse. First of all, the author introduces a new character. And he does so by giving us, really, four important details. Again, he's introduced by the name Boaz, but there's other things here. First, he's a relative of Naomi's husband. And another thing that's rather interesting is that this word for relative is also somewhat obscure. It's only used in one other place of the Bible, and that's Proverbs 7.4. Proverbs 7.4, where it is translated relative. So it's used there and it's used here. But anyhow, he is a relative, and so we're not sure uh, how, how distant or how close, but he's described simply as a relative of Naomi's. We determine the meaning pretty much by what we see later on in this book as his association. Later on, Boaz is going to be called our relative, and also he's going to be called kinsman redeemer. That's a concept that we'll see a little bit later. And we'll see what that means shortly. Secondly, he's described as Heil. And although... The word is translated wealthy in most Bibles. That's what we're going to see here. We're going to see that it's translated wealthy here. Um, And he probably, and he certainly is a man of substance. We have to try to determine what we really mean here. Uh, The term is actually quite ambiguous and capable of a wide range of interpretations. If we were to look at another book of the Bible that uses this word, we would want to go probably to Judges, because Judges is is used at the very same time that we believe that this is written. And it's used in Judges 6.12. Let's go back to Judges 6.12 of Gideon. Used of Gideon in Judges 6.12. We know the, na- the story of Gideon, but as it begins, we see that the Midianites are oppressing Israel. And there are not a lot of what we would call heroes in and around Israel at the time, but the angel of the Lord, and this is what we would call a, pre- a pre-incarnate. So that's something that comes before 
Christ's incarnation. Incarnate means coming in the flesh, appearing in the flesh. So this is prior to that. This is the angel of the Lord coming and sat under a terabith tree, which was in uh, Orphra, which belonged to Joaz, the Abers Rite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. So what he's doing, he's actually in a winepress where it's generally enclosed. So he's in there and he's threshing. And when we talk about threshing, he's probably trying to separate the seeds from the chaff. And the way that you would do that is you can throw it up or you can just drop it or there's various techniques, but he's... He's hiding, and he's also trying to thresh something. And we would probably uh, see him as almost negating the purpose of what he's doing, because if he's hiding, and he's where wind can't get to him, he's really not doing a very good job of this threshing. He's hoping that the chaff will be blown away from the seeds, but he's kind of over here in the corner doing it. So he's probably not being very successful. And then it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you, high, you mighty man of Hile. And what does this mean? What is he talking to him about? What is he saying? Well, he's probably not calling him wealthy. But we have to understand again how this is possibly used. Uh, Gideon is called a mighty man of valor. Uh, we might think of him the Lord is probably referring to him as a warrior. And that's what he's going to be. And so he's, the Lord is describing him as possibly a noble warrior or a military hero. But for Boaz, we don't see Boaz in that light, at least here. I mean, there's no sense in any of the book for us to associate him with the military or with being an honorable warrior. So I don't think it merits that type of, of a description or definition. The word can mean wealth, and that's what I started out with. But that's... Uh, that's possibly what we might call a secondary meaning. The primary meaning, I think, is strength. It has to do with some sort of power. And while we might say that power can come with wealth, and Boaz was, as I said before, a man of substance, we don't necessarily see that this is the emphasis of the author. I don't think the emphasis, even though the we could say that there, it's trying to tell us that there's uh, a an emphasis on substance here. I think what we're talking about is that he's a man of standing in the community and that he's not what we would say, he's just not the average Israelite. Yes, he has property, but the real thrust of the writer's description of Boaz seems to be more with respect to character. And the reason we're, I'm going to come down on that shade of the meaning here is because this same word is going to be used for Ruth. The same word is going to be used for Ruth. And there's different ways of approaching it and authors do. They would say that, well, in one sense we're using this for wealth, uh, for strength, meaning wealth with Boaz. But when we get to the to uh, Boaz's use of the word in relationship to Ruth, it's sort of a figure of speech. He's sort of using it to mean that you are considered a wealthy person but with regard to your character. And I, I think you, can, you might say something like that, but I, I think that stretches it a little bit. So I think that 
what he's real yes Boaz has wealth but I think here the intent of the of the author is more to tell us that he is a man of strength and the strength that we see is in his character and so that's what we see here by the way this is also the same word that is used in Proverbs 31:10 when describing the virtuous woman and again I don't want to say, therefore, this means virtuous here, but I'm just giving you that idea to show you that it can mean that. It certainly has that understanding. This, the woman that's being described in 31.10 is a woman of strength, and her strength is in her virtue. And so I think we have something similar to that here, although there's, there's other ways, uh, as I said, there's other meanings, and it's used uh, other ways in the Bible. The word, as I said, will also describe Ruth in 3.11. So, I don't think that wealth is the main idea of the writer. I think the author is giving us a look into the future and telling us that this is a noble, a virtuous man who is going to rescue the family from an adversity. And again, uh, that rescue will lead to the line of Christ. And so... We're seeing, I think, how that develops. Thirdly, he's from the tribe of Elimelech. He's a close relative, so that is going to be meaningful. We're going to study that here in a little bit. And fourth, his name is Boaz. Again, uh, we don't know what that word necessarily means. It possibly means strength, but the actual meaning is somewhat obscure. Okay, we're going to go back to Ruth now from uh, Judges. We could have gone over to Proverbs and, and taken a quick look at uh, how the uh, Chayel is used in Proverbs 31, but I think we'll just press on here. And I, what I'd like to do is give you, before we get to the Leverite uh, doctrine, the Leverite marriage, I want to look at four observations just prior to that. And that kind of, again, helps us to set the context here. First of all, the first one is that the solution to discipline or the solution to punishment, because that's what we have uh, going on in Naomi's life. And I've tried to establish Naomi as the central character, or certainly the central character so far. And I think she really is the central character in the book. But the solution to discipline or to punishment that comes from disobedience, and that's what we've seen here, does not happen overnight. So the solution or the recovery, we could say that, doesn't come overnight. When we encounter hardships, we often want God to remove the hardship or the pressure and solve our problem overnight. We want it done immediately. So we get ourselves into something, and then we want the Lord to resolve it immediately. And I like to call that the aspirin solution. You know, the aspirin solution is I've got a headache, I've got a pain, I've got something. Take the aspirin. A couple minutes later, it's gone. And that's what we would like for God to do in our lives apply the aspirin solution. The problem is, is that, we, that the problem that we have created did not happen overnight, and generally God's solution will take time. His solution is going to take time. So the problem didn't happen overnight, and generally God's solution will take time. And that's because it's either going to be a natural process, you know, if we've somehow gotten ourselves ill or weak or in a jam, there may be a natural process such as healing that needs to take place, maybe physical healing. Or it's simply part of God's discipline in teaching us the lessons that we must learn. We've got a lesson to learn here, and we're not going to learn it with just a glimpse of the discipline. 
In other words, if we could just snap our fingers, the situation would disappear if we could. And if that happened, there would be little reason for us to refuse the inclination, the desire, or the lust and the pleasure that took us into the deviation from God's plan in the first place. So there has to be a period of learning. And I know that I'm talking to people who, you know, most of you have raised children. You don't set some, you don't say, okay, I don't know exactly what the discipline would be, but it might be put, putting them in the corner. Or you're going to stand in the corner. That used to be how you used to handle Johnny, you know. Johnny, go stand in that corner. And they stand in the corner. Well, he doesn't barely get there and say, okay, come back and sit down. No, he hasn't learned anything by walking to the corner and walking back. But if he stands there, hopefully he's contemplating what he's done. You know, that's the hope. Now, you stand over there and you think about what you've done. If I had a dime for every time I heard that from my mother. Now, you sit there or you stand there or you do this and you think about what you've done. Well, that's the last thing I'm thinking about, I really think. I'm thinking how you know, I'm really being abused. But anyhow, it doesn't just happen over, you know, you don't walk there and walk back. You stand there for a while. And that's what happens with God's uh, treatment of us in life. Secondly, the first chapter focuses on Naomi. It focuses on Naomi, the crisis in her life, and how she responds to that crisis. Well, she hasn't responded very well so far. The second chapter is going to focus on Ruth. It's going to focus mostly on Ruth and her response to the crisis and what God is doing behind the scenes to resolve it. So Ruth, we don't have any sense here that she's being disciplined, but she does have some problems and difficulties. So we see a little bit of a difference here between Naomi. Naomi has made decisions. Limelech's made decisions. She's made decisions. And there is discipline in her life. Now Ruth, as near as we know, is there any reason here for her to be disciplined? Well, we don't see that. But there's adversity here for her. She loses a husband. And you say, that's unfair. No, that's life. And so we see two examples of hardship here. One is for discipline, and the other one is simply you know, the uh, normal occurrences in life. But we're going to see them arrive at... They're going to, and we're going to see how God works behind the scenes to resolve both of these situations. God always has a solution to the problems of our lives. We simply can't see it at first. We don't see the solution. And that's a problem for us, but it's not a problem for God because that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to trust Him for the solution, to have faith in Him and in His character and His plan. And so He doesn't reveal that to us. As the reader, we already know what's going to happen in this case. You know, we've gotten a glimpse of Boaz is over here. And so people you know, run ahead and say, ah, he's part of the solution. Isn't this wonderful? Well, Naomi and Ruth don't know that yet. So as readers, we already know what's going to happen, and we know how the situation is probably going to be resolved. And the story is like a stage play with the actors out on the stage acting out the story, and the stage manager is behind the scenes directing what's going on. And that's sort of what we have here. We have the stage manager. He's pulling the action together in a certain way. And God here is the stage manager. He is functioning behind the scenes. He knows what's going on. Stage manager is running things. And he's got everything under control. We don't see God brought out on the stage of this play as we might in other, you know, other narratives. I mean, in other narratives, God will appear. He'll talk to the characters. The Lord says this. Why did you do that? You know, speaking. But he, we don't see that here. He's going to stay behind the scenes completely.
However, the writer brings us, brings us into the story by giving us this advanced information. For example, in 2.1, we're told that Elimelech had a family relatively named Boaz, a man of strength or of integrity here, honor and position in Bethlehem. Ruth and Naomi don't know this yet, but we do. We've got this little bit of insight. So we can sit back and enjoy the telling of the tale and watching how God works out this situation. Thirdly, the point of view of the author, the point of view that the author takes here is much like the one that is much like one that we should have in our own lives. So there's a little bit of an application here. We are like Naomi or Ruth and we face problems. We face crises, we face situations in life, and we have to make decisions. But we're, but we're unaware of just what God is doing behind the scenes. So this is the same for us. And we need to put ourselves, and we should see ourselves in the, in the position of Naomi and Ruth, because they don't know what's happening. We do, but they don't. And so they have to make decisions unaware of what God's going to be doing. And the writer here is showing us, through various literary techniques and a little tongue-in-cheek humor, that God is working behind the scenes. So that's what we see. That, that's what's developing here. God is working behind the scenes. So we come into chapter 2 and we say, hmm, I wonder why he did that. Well, this is his way of showing us that already God is working this situation. We've, we've known that he's working the situation as he brings them out of Moab. As they come back to Bethlehem, as they greet their friends, they're there at the beginning of the barley harvest. But it just continues, and we see the Lord working in their lives. And that's what this verse is designed to tell us. And it's sort of, pay attention here, keep your eyes open. Here we've got uh, things that are, are beginning to, tra- to turn. So on stage, we see the players... You know, possibly Ruth, depending upon her spiritual condition, spiritual situation. And I think, as I mentioned last time, we don't know where she is, but as we follow this, we begin to see that she really has stability. She has stability. She, she moves out. She'll conduct herself uh, in a very uh, an appropriate way, uh, maybe not often seen, in young people, although young people used to grow up a lot faster back then. So when she declares in the end of or in the middle towards the end of chapter one that Naomi's God will be her God, she probably has already begun a very fast transition and, and God truly now is her God. And so we see probably in uh, Ruth, but certainly in Boaz, they are going to be executing faith in God to take care of them in their situation. And we sometimes call this the faith rest technique. The faith rest technique meaning we have certain promises. And we claim those promises and we rest in those promises. We know the kind of promises that God has given us. And so it's important for us to know the promises so that we can use this faith resting Drill or faith resting technique. Let's let me give you a few passages of scripture that we can possibly use in this way. And let's go to a passage that we might not see or use often. Let's go to Nahum. Now somebody will say, "Oh my goodness, Nahum!" And it's even hard for me to find. But we go to the very end of the Old Testament, Malachi, Zechariah, and back our way in to Nahum. It's only about two or three pages long. You go by Habakkuk, Ze- Zephaniah, Habakkuk, and then into Nahum. It's sometimes hard to find. 
It's right after Micah. Micah Nahum. And in Nahum 1.7, we have this wonderful promise. Nahum 1.7 The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of troubles, and He knows those who trust in Him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who trust in Him. And so if we take this as a promise, and we believe that this is true, we believe, sometimes we need to change it, we often say we'll change this to some sort of a a doctrinal rationale. What does this mean? Well, this means that the sovereignty of God is certainly uh, very active in our lives. God is sovereign. And if God is sovereign, then... He is able to take care of us. We'd also say He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. He's there for our protection. God protects us. And then we live, we apply these to our lives. Another one we might look at on our way back to our passage would be in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Another promise. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is a, is a uh, verse that I quote before one of our services, and it's, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. So we're not to lean on our own understanding. You know, Naomi's understanding of the situation is that God is dealing harshly with her. Well, she can't follow that understanding. She has to... She has to stay with her promises, the promises that she knows that God really does care for her and loves her. And all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. Well, you say, well, she didn't have those promises, and she didn't have Nahum. Well, okay, let's go back to Deuteronomy, one that she could have had, Deuteronomy 3.16. Deuteronomy 31.6, excuse me, got my numbers confused there. Deuteronomy 31.6. Deuteronomy 31.6 is what I was trying to say. But my tongue got wrapped around my eye tooth and I couldn't see what I was saying. That's another one of my mother's sayings that she liked. Deuteronomy 31.6 See, I was a good child. I learned a lot from my mother. All standing in the corner. <laughs> Uh, Deuteronomy 31.16 Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. Talking about the uh, enemy here. For the Lord your God, He is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. And so, Naomi can rest in these things. Ruth could rest in these as she learns them. Anyhow, they are supposed to be trusting in these principles. And so... They're doing, hopefully, as we see them progress now through chapter 2, and we'll pick up Naomi along the way, and they'll begin to do these things. But I believe that Ruth and Boaz certainly are doing this. They're trusting God for the results. They're They're going about their daily lives being faithful to His promises and to His commands in their lives. Ruth doesn't know how God is going to solve her problem, but, she's, but she has not lost her perspective. She has a good perspective here. She knows that she needs to get up and she needs to move out. Naomi appears to be going home to die because she's caught up in what we would call self-absorption. She's been you know, very uh, self-absorbed. 
She's absorbed in herself and her own bitterness at her loss. And in all of this, we detect that behind the scenes, God is working providentially, arranging circumstances in a very remarkable way. The last point here before we get to the doctrine of the Leverite marriage is that the book of Ruth, again, I'm going to talk a little bit about the book of Ruth, trying to dispel this thought that it's just a nice story. You know, well, it's just a wonderful story. Well, no, the book of Ruth is not just a nice story about some young girl who is destitute, impoverished, who's lost her husband, and she finds a wonderful, noble, uh, a wonderful, noble man of integrity to take care of her. That's not what we're supposed to see here. There's so much more. The author was not simply writing a love story. It's not just a romance, and some people see it that way. It's just a romance. This is not just a story of God's solution in one girl's life. It's a picture of how God is continuously working behind the scenes to transform our adversity, our pressure, and even our discipline into blessing. And I'll repeat that. This book is a picture of how God is continuously working. This book is a picture of how God is continuously working behind the scenes. He's continuously working behind the scenes to transform our adversity, pressure, and even our discipline into blessing. He's transforming our adversity, pressure, and even our discipline into blessing. If it's just a love story, we miss this valuable lesson. Okay. Now, let's look at the doctrine of the Leverite marriage. The doctrine of the Leverite marriage, and you can see it there, it's spelled L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E. Leverite, or yeah, the Leverett marriage. Some people would maybe pronounce it the Leverett marriage, doctrine of the Leverett marriage. L e v i r a t e, and the word first of all, just sort of as, as a an introduction here, we're going to introduce it with a little bit of a of an explanation and then some verses. But the Leverite marriage. The word comes from the Latin word L-E-V-I-R, levir, levir. And it stands for, or is supposed to mean, brother-in-law. Some people would say it seems rather lengthy, but it does mean husband's brother. That's the idea. It's brother-in-law or husband's brother. Uh, I've talked a little bit about this. Remember that our basis for this and wanting to study it comes from... Ruth, really, Ruth one eleven, when she says, Turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb, that they may be your husbands? And then she goes on to talk about you know, uh, members of her family who would be the solution to their problems. And so that's where we also get this. And now we're also introduced to Ruth, or to Boaz, as a relative. But some background here, a little bit more than what you have in your notes, is that in the ancient Near East, and I kind of talked a little bit about this, but in the ancient Near East, for a man to die without leaving a son was regarded as an incalculable loss. And so that's, that's one of the reasons why we see this. And it's not just a biblical concept. We'll see, and I'll point this out as we go. But... What we have is that a person's memory was preserved in his descendants. And that's the way this was viewed. In order to maintain the family line and the name of the deceased, 
we would often see that a brother or a near relative would marry the man's widow and father a child that would carry on the, the man's family name. And so, in order to maintain the family line and the name of the deceased, a brother or another near relative would marry the man's widow and father a child that would carry on the man's family name. And this custom became a part of the Mosaic Law. It becomes a part of the Mosaic Law. And when it becomes a part of the Mosaic Law, then we have God's grace provision. And it's God's grace provision to preserve the inheritance in the family. Preserve the inheritance within the family. Even when the father was childless. Part of that inheritance, in fact, a major portion of it was the land that had been given to Israel in the promised land. So that's one of the major portion, uh, the major uh, factors here. This supported divine institution, what we might call divine institution number three. And divine institution number three is in order, is in a line of institutions. The first one we would say, often we call it volition. It's really, I think, human responsibility. God instills in the human race, human responsibility. We have the responsibility to make decisions. God gives us uh, responsibility. He gives us choices. The first choice was Adam is to name the animals. He has this choice to follow that and do that. They also have the choice of choosing or not choosing from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so they have, we see immediately that the first divine institution is going to be human responsibility. The second one we see is marriage. God institutes marriage. And the third one is family. He institutes family because they are to be fruitful and multiply. And there's going to be the family here. The other, the other two, uh, sometimes we say four, sometimes we say five, there's going to be human government as possibly the fourth and then fifth are nations, national entities. Human government arises when we see capital punishment instituted. Capital punishment is not supposed to be on the shoulders of the individual. It's on the shoulders of a government or on an organization, not on the shoulders of the individual. And so with that, God institutes human government and then finally national entities as well uh, are, are also instituted. But this one supports the institution of the family. Now, Let's see, I've talked about, first of all, I, I think I then give you that the basis for the Leverite doctrine is found, the Leverite doctrine is found in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10, and also Genesis 38, 8. Let's go to Genesis 38, 8 first, because that demonstrates to us, prior to the giving of the Mosaic Law, that it was something, it was a, we could say it's cultural, but I also believe that this is instituted by God early in His relationship with mankind because we know that before we have Scripture, that God's interaction is in, uh, in His appearances. He would appear to Adam and to Eve. He appears to Cain. He appears to Enoch. He appears to Noah. So he appears, and in doing so, he presents them with principles and how they should live their lives. And I think that's where where, uh, we'll see this. And we're looking now at Judah in chapter 38 of Genesis. And what we have to see here is that Jacob's family, for whatever reason, and he's got four sons early on, 
that are born to Leah. Reuben's the first one, and he falls on hard times, we might say, because he ends up committing adultery with one of his father's uh, mistresses. Then we have Simeon and then Levi, and they react very strongly at their sister's rape uh, with Shechem, murdering, wiping out an entire town. And now we see Judah. This is the fourth son. And Judah marries a Canaanite woman, and that starts in verse uh, in chapter 38, verse 1. It came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers, so he leaves, leaves the family here, and visits a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he marries her. So he, instead of marrying within the family, he marries a Canaanite. And he went into her, so they have sexual relations. And she conceives and bore a son. He called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was, uh, he was at uh, Chezeb, Chezeb when she bore him. Now we have a period of time, and we see that after he grows up, the first son, then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Well, we're going to... Tamar now will play uh, a very interesting role in this family, and also she'll play an interesting role in Ruth, because her name is going to come up in Ruth, and then she's going to come up in the line of Christ. So Tamar, uh, it's the first time we see her, but she's a very important woman in the Bible. But Ur... Judah's firstborn was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. So the Lord removes him from the earth because of his wickedness. So we see this principle that God removes wicked people. He not only removes wicked people, but he removes wicked cultures and nations and organizations. And that's what was happening in Canaan later on when the the iniquity of the Amorite was full. And Judah said to Onan, second brother, Go into your into your uh, go into your brother's wife and marry her, and raise up an heir to your brother. So we can go on and read this story, but uh, it gets a little bit more involved here. But you see that this is the concept. This is the concept of the brother dies without having an heir. Here's the widow, Onan. Now I'm telling you that she becomes your responsibility. This is really dad teaching the son this principle. Well. Uh, Onan doesn't uh, follow through, uh, and the reason I, uh, we're not really necessarily told here, but he now is the oldest son. See, here's where character is seen. If you don't have character, it becomes very obvious. Well, Onan doesn't have character because he knows that he's now the oldest son, so the inheritance of the father will fall to him. Well, it won't if his brother has an heir. So he doesn't want his brother to have an heir. So the Lord solves that problem. He takes Onan out. So Onan doesn't have to worry about getting an heir, being the heir. All right, let's go now to Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. Deuteronomy 5. Deuteronomy 25. And we see here the marriage duty of the surviving brother. That's how it's represented in my Bible. In Deuteronomy 25, 5. If brothers dwell together 
and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of the husband's brother to her. Okay, it's a lot in that first verse. But the euphemism here, of course, to go into her means to have sexual relations with her for the purpose of her becoming pregnant. And he's also to take her to himself, meaning to marry her or bring her into the family in an official way. That's what it's saying here. So the duty was more than just fathering a child. But for a living brother, and we're not really specifying here uh, that it was the you know, which brother it is, but generally it's going to be the next brother in line. It was, it was for the living brother to assume the responsibility for the future welfare of the dead brother's wife. So she and the child would join his family to be protected by the living brother, and she would, in essence, become his second wife. That's how this was working. All right, verse 6. And it shall be that the firstborn son whom she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And I think in the Old English it said that he will stand on the name. And so the firstborn, the, the first son born to this widow from this union with the dead brother's widow would take the name of the dead brother. So that's the idea here. And he would be placed in the family of the deceased and be recognized as the heir of his property. And that the name of the man who had died childless might not vanish or might not vanish from Israel. And in this in this requirement, God is demonstrating his emphasis again on the family. The family is the basic foundation of society. And God instituted laws for Israel to preserve the family. That's what God is doing here. Verse twenty or verse seven. But if the brother does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his uh, brother's wife uh, go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. So there's recourse here. I mean, it, there is a choice. The brother can make a choice here and say, I don't want to. But if he doesn't, then the widow has recourse as well. So there's a procedure here. And what we see is that the elders of the gate of the city represent the legal officials of the locale. So it's not just go up there and there's a group of people standing around and talk to them about it. No. This, this was, a, again, an idiom for the legal officials of the locale. And she was to take the matter to the leaders of the community because this was no longer just a private matter. This is not... Just something that's occurring within the family. It's not a private matter, but it's a public one as well. Verse 8. Then the elders of the city shall call him, and this is, of course, the brother who has refused this responsibility, call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders. A little bit of a strange uh, activity here, but this is you know, what it says. Remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. So, we've got quite a bit of, uh, of uh, action going on here. What do we have? Well, you know, the decision of the brother had to be validated by the elders of the city in order for the widow to be free from her first option for resolving the lack of an heir. And We'll, we'll discuss this a little bit more uh, when we get down to 
uh, well, no, let me just pick it up here. We also see that the brother's decision, at, you know, the, we, well, we may see, excuse me, we may see the brother's decision as a legitimate choice. But God saw this as an act of irresponsibility. That's how God views this. It's an act of irresponsibility. A man putting his own rights and welfare above those of his family. And for this, and for his insistence of his rights, uh, he's insisting his rights over the rights of the widow as well. And for that, he deserves to be public dis- publicly disgraced or punished. Now, the removal of the sandal. This is, we'll, I will talk about it a little bit more. But the removal of a sandal represents forfeiture by the derelict brother of any claims he might have to the departed brother's estate. So we sort of have to uh, pull this out of Scripture. But the removal of the sandal represents forfeiture by the derelict brother, I'm calling him, of any claims he might have had to his departed brother's estate. So he removes... And you say, how does the sandal work in here? Well, the symbolism came from the fact that that when anyone took possession of landed property, he did so by treading upon the soil. So the symbolism comes from the fact that when anyone took possession of landed property, he did so by treading upon the soil and asserting his right of possession by standing upon it in his shoes, in his sandals. So... That's how that they, back in those days, they asserted their right to the property by walking on it, standing on it. And so the sandal becomes that symbol. And one of the ways we know this is that's precisely how God told Abraham to take possession of his land. He said, look out here. Everything that you see belongs to you. And then he says, walk on it. Walk throughout your property. And so God is saying, take possession of it. Of course, we also know that this comes out of Joshua 1.3, where God says to Joshua, everywhere that your foot, shoe, falls will belong to you. I'm still in Deuteronomy here, but we can leaf back to Joshua 1.3. Joshua 1.3 Joshua 1.3 says, you know, he's just told him to get up, cross the river, and he says, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. And so, again, we see this symbolism arising out of this, this scripture. There's also a negative symbolism to the brother who refused to perform this responsibility. So we have the downside of this. He was prohibited from setting foot on the land belonging to the deceased brother. So we take... The sandal, that was symbolism to say, you no longer have any right to your brother's property. None whatsoever. In this way, the taking off of the shoe and handing handing it to another became a symbol of the renunciation of a man's position and property. And we'll see that when we get further into chapter 2 and 3, actually uh, all the way to 4, when there's going to be an arrangement at the city gates between Boaz and a relative. He takes off his sandal and gives it to him. And in that way, we see the symbolism of renouncing the man's, uh, uh, rena- the renunciation of a man's position and property. In this case, the custom was, we would say, in our case in Deuteronomy 25, uh, is that uh, 9, 
in 9, it's an ignominious one when the shoe was publicly taken off the foot of the brother-in-law by the widow whom he refused to marry. So it's the negative side. He was thus deprived of the position which he ought to have occupied in relation to this woman, this widow. And in relation to the deceased brother or or to the paternal house. Now, the act of spitting displays the utmost disdain or contempt. And we don't have a lot of this in the Bible, but we do have this at Christ's crucifixion. Matthew 27, uh, 30 tells us that uh, the Roman soldiers spit in his face. And so we see that this is uh, an act of disdain or contempt. So it was an extreme act of public disgrace and was performed to discourage men from declining to perform their duty as a Levite. And so that's what we have here. And there's verse 25, 10 says, And in Israel his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. And so kind of gave him a moniker here that uh, would be disgraceful. Well, you know, you don't want that, so hopefully you would fulfill your responsibility to your family. Now, our first point here, and I've covered most of the background information by going through that passage, but our first point is that the widow is not to marry outside the family. She's not to marry a stranger, and she's not to marry outside the family. She stays within the family. And that's why Naomi was talking to these uh, girls, her daughters-in-law, in this way. And she finally says, okay, I'm releasing you. You can go. You don't have to stay within the family. You don't have to marry within the family. You may go back to your families. And so this was a, a significant break with custom. That's one of the reasons we need to, to see this. And we see that in Deuteronomy 25.5. Secondly, the brother-in-law was to take his brother's wife as his wife. And if she had a son, to raise that son up, to raise him up as the son of the first husband, his dead brother. And that's what 5 and 6 in Deuteronomy 25 tells us. The Mosaic Law went, on, went to great lengths to ensure that the property stayed with the family. That's what the Mosaic Law was trying to do. They want the property to stay with the family. Because that's the basis for society, is the family. It wants to stay with the family that it had originally been given. It was to be a perpetual inheritance. The word inheritance has as its primary connotation possession. It really does. As we study inheritance in the Old Testament, we'll study it here very soon in Joshua, when we talk about inheritance, it's possession. They're given an inheritance, they're giving a possession. The land was to be their primary possession. The land was broken down tribe by tribe, and each tribal allotment was further broken down by clans and families. Therefore, each family had a piece of land that was theirs, and theirs in perpetuity. It was to be theirs forever. That's how it was designed. This was, this was so even if the family came into financial straits and had to sell it off, had to sell the land off. Because at the end, in, at the end of 50 years, the year of Jubilee, the land would return to its original owner. In this way, the family never lost the family land. And the Mosaic Law had very definite guidance to support the family. So this allowed the family name to continue and the inheritance to continue in the family, even in the case of an early death of one of the men. So that's why this is set up this way. Three, some think that there's a contradiction between Leviticus 18.16 and Leviticus 20.21, which was a uh, prohibition against promiscuity. Uh, let's go and look, and also adultery here, but let's look at Levi, uh, Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18, 
takes us back into Moses' discussion of the law. And in Leviticus 18.16, we go through these laws of sexual morality, starting in, up in uh, really in verse 1, and working our way through, verse 6 says, None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. And that was to have sexual relationship with them. Starts off with, I am the Lord. I mean, don't, who's saying this? I am the Lord. He punctuates what he's saying with, I am the Lord. Then he says, the nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother you shall not uncover. Well, all right. We move over to 16, and 16 says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. So they are not to do that. That was prohibited. But that prohibition is overridden by the uh, by Deuteronomy 25. We also see this same prohibition in Leviticus 20:21. 20, Leviticus 20:21. 20, <clears throat> uh, Leviticus 19 says you shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister nor of your father's sister for that would Uncover his near, uh, for that would uncover his near of kin. They shall bear the guilt. If a man lies with his uncle's wife, he has uncovered his uncle's nakedness. They shall bear their sin. They shall die childless. So you see that the Lord controls childbirth here. 21. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. But that's, uh, that is a principle but when with the death of the the brother then we have this principle the doctrine of the leveret marriage taking precedence those passages forbid intercourse with a sister-in-law when the brother is still alive if the brother was unable to have a son then while he while he lived he could not uh, call his brother to take his place. If the brother was unable to have a son, then while he lived, he couldn't call to have his brother take his place. In other words, he says, we're childless. I think it might be me. That's the problem, physical problem. He couldn't call his brother to take his place. The failure for the marriage to produce an heir in that case was seen as an act of God. And we've already seen that. We've seen that they would be childless and God dictates that. That, by the way, is also seen in Genesis 29.31. just give you a couple other passages here. Genesis 29.31. Genesis 30, chapter, or Genesis 32, verse 2. And also Genesis 30.22. We also see it in 1 Samuel 1.6. So 1 Samuel 1.6. And all of those passages, first one deals with Rachel because she's unable to bear a child. Actually, I think the first one deals with uh, Leah. She has four children, and then she's childless. She can't bear, and then the Lord allows her to bear again. And the same thing with Rachel. Rachel is unable to bear children, but the Lord allows her to, be- to have children. And that's the way it's stated. And then in 1 Samuel 1.6, we saw that, and we've been there. We saw that of Hannah. Hannah was childless, and it was seen as an act of God. And then point four. Refusal of this option, of this obligation, was considered a slight on the family and the nation. It showed he had little regard for the family and the inheritance God had given them. The refusal is indicated through the removal of the sandal ceremony. And the ceremony of the chal- chalissa, and that's the, uh, 
the uh, Latin word, was a public demonstration of the family going before the elders at the town gate, which was considered the local magistrate for the conduct of civil trials where legal decisions were made. If the brother said he was not going to assume his responsibility, then the woman was to pull off his sandal, pull his sandal off his foot, and spit in his face, indicating that this was an irresponsible and shameful act. She then was free to remarry whomever she wanted. The first option, though, was to go to the brother-in-law. And so this is the doctrine of the Leveret marriage. And we don't have a lot of other examples of it in the Bible. We see it in Genesis uh, Genesis, what was that, 38? Genesis 38. But, and then we see it in Deuteronomy 25. So, uh, yeah, Deuteronomy 38, Genesis 38 and Deuteronomy 25. And those are the only two places that we actually see it. We see it here then played out in Ruth. But uh, that's, that's the doctrine of the deliberate marriage. Well, we're off to a running start in chapter 2. When we come back next time, we've got the decks sort of cleared. So I think we can... Uh, do some work in some of these verses. We'll move through uh, the, the opening part of Ruth, going out to find work, and then we'll also be introduced to Boaz, and then Boaz and Ruth meet. So we've got a wonderful chapter next time. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Differently, Father, we're thankful for the Word of God and the doctrines that you have shown us. We're thankful that we also see, Father, that you are working behind the scenes here. And throughout this book, even though you are not uh, you aren't personally or physically seen interacting with the, uh, the characters, as you've seen in some other parts of the, of the Word of God, we see that you are definitely working behind the scenes. And God the Holy Spirit brings that out for us. And so the lesson that we know and we learn is that you are working behind the scenes in our lives as well. And we're thankful that you are. And while we may not be able to see the future outworkings of what's happening, we know that you are a sovereign God. We know that you do have a plan for our lives and that it's a perfect plan and that that plan is designed to make us happy. Help us to focus and concentrate on our spiritual lives. Help us to grow spiritually. Help us to apply the doctrine that we do know and do understand. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.